biggest critics of capitalism have been people who call themselves socialists. Today we get a chance to discuss with Neil Williams, who identifies as a socialist, about the differences between socialism and capitalism. This is a very interesting conversation that you will look forward to. I'm William Carrick, and welcome to Does Capitalism Have a Future? here with uh, Neil Williams. Neil Williams has been um, a socialist or affinity, had an affinity with socialism for many years, and we're going to get his perspective on socialism versus capitalism. So, Neil, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, okay, so my first question is, is what first attracted you to socialism and Marxism in general? Well, I think it goes back to my early childhood, namely through my uh, grandfather, who was a Irish immigrant to England, in, mm -hmm. uh, and he became a steel worker, a welder by trade, and was yes. active in his, his union. So mm -hmm. we used to always talk about, he used to talk to me about, um, um, his. he believe, was a staunch believer in that, that old saying, um, fair day's work for a fair day's wage mm -hmm. and so we used to talk about that we used to talk about you know income inequalities around uh around the planet and he got he was a staunch um labor party supporter he was very socially conservative very you know practicing uh, catholic but um when it came to labor issues he was a uh, very staunch so socialist so that sort of got me the beginnings into socialism and then also growing up where i did um was sort of a i would say kind of like an affluent upper middle class neighborhood and we um i sort of saw the beginnings of uh social inequalities when i was at an elementary school and there were um refugees from um Latin America during the civil wars at that time in Latin America. And they um, were settled into our neighborhood. And I saw um, basically some of the treatment that they were receiving by the more affluent ki kids and uh, the bullying and taunting and stuff like that. So that kind of opened my eyes a bit to, um, you know, the inequalities that exist in society and then tied into that growing up into near the end of which was the height of the Cold War, kind of got me interested in, um, in Soviet politics and, and socialism in general. So it was sort of like a, a gradual um, evolution from everyday life influenced my family and uh, just basically seeing the inequalities that existed within society. Okay, so there's a couple of points there. One point would be, I imagine your grandfather was involved with the Labour Party, and this is m much prior to 
uh, the Tony Blair era of the Labour Party. Yeah, he would be, he passed away long before Tony Blair became, but he would be livid with uh, Tony Blair's interpretation of, uh, of uh, labor and how he moved labor to the center and made it essentially a liberal party. Um, He was a very, you know, the old, um, the Harold Wilson types of, uh, you know, the, the, like the old, old labor, old labor guard with the heavy involvement in the trade unions and, uh, you know, basically a um, cradle to grave uh, socialist that the state should be um, involved in an individual's life and providing assistance and help and guidance from the uh, century from the cradle to the grave. So that's the type of socialist he would have been, like the old labor, old labor. Okay. And I guess the second thing is, um, you're talking about getting involved in, in an interest in Soviet politics, but by your age, that would have been when the Soviet Union was actually going through a state of collapse. Yeah, which eventually yeah. happened in 1991 with, of course, East Germany starting first in 89 with the wall coming down. Now, when you had your interest in communism and socialism, were you aware of, um, you know, some of the human rights issues that were, you know, human rights violations that were happening in, in various communist countries around the world? Yeah, I would have been aware of that. And, but I would have been, you know, to be honest with you, I would have been glossing over those details um, and looking at the, you know, from a lot of the literature I was reading was uh, um, by the publishing house and from Moscow, Progress Press. So mm-hmm. obviously it was very, you know, well, it was just, it was the party's uh, publishing house. So it was, it was very geared towards looking at only the highlights of the Right. So it was, it was, it was propaganda from, from totally was, totally was, but um, yeah, you know, you would hear of, uh, of uh, human rights. And of course, um, you know, I was interested in Soviet politics, but I was never a uh, mainline party member of say the communist party of Canada, which was heavily pro pro Soviet. And so I was, I was still critical of the Soviet Union at the time as well. Okay. So you, did you join some sort of, um, you said you weren't part of the Communist Party of Canada. Yeah. But were you affiliated with any other, other groups, like yeah. organizations, yeah. socialist or communist? Yeah, I got involved in uh, Trotskyism, was the strand of uh, communism that I got involved with, was, uh, was uh, Trotskyism and various uh, Trotskyist uh, groups and leagues that, uh, that existed. So that went from, you know, towards the end of high school throughout uh, university joining um, various Trotskyist groups. And Trotskyists are very good at forming a group one day and then the next two people split off and join another group the next day mm-hmm. and it keeps on evolving. They're very good at splits. So, right. It's like the form of Protestant Christianity in North America. Well, it, it's, it's like, um, it's exactly like Monty Python had it exactly right in, um, what was the movie, Life of Brian? Yes. When, you know, don't talk to him, he's part of the the, Jew, the popular front of Judea and the Judea, po- the popular front of Judea and the Judea popular front, the people's front of Judea. Like it's, yeah, it, they're very good at, um, 
forming parties, forming factions, and then the next day splitting off and joining another one. Right. So for people that may not be familiar, why, why is the name Trotsky used to, after Leon Trotsky? Why is that used as a title in, in these political groups? Well, it was just, it was his strand of um, communism and how the party would be organized. And of course, this goes back to when he was in the left opposition um, battling Stalin and gradually being squeezed out and squeezed out of the party and of the uh, and ultimately exiled. It was uh, basically formed on the belief that there should be a permanent revolution, um, world revolution, as opposed to Stalin's uh, socialism in one country approach, which uh, developed when um, Stalin became leader of the party and Trotsky thought it was a, a capitulation and then ultimately a betrayal to, you know, Leninism, which argued for the ultimately world revolution. So that's, that's one strand. There's also um, the belief of uh, how, um, you know, if you want to get in details about Stalin's five-year plan and there was criticisms of that, but essentially it's, um, Stalinists believed in um, somewhere considered reformist because they got involved in electoral politics as opposed to pure, being pure, pure revolutionaries. And whereas Trotskyists um, were um, committed to the revolution and ultimately a world uh, workers revolution. That's sort of what, you know, in a scratching the surface, the different what would define Trotskyism. Okay, that's good. So we're, we're now at, um, so you're talking at high school, like 89, 90, 91. Yeah. Those are the years when the, you know, the Berlin Wall comes down and the Soviet Union eventually collapses. So my question would be, why do you think the, that form of communism failed? Or may, I should actually say that they were all socialism. Communism is supposed to be this final stage where you don't even have a state anymore. Yeah. So even communism is used in the names of those countries and various parties there never actually has ever been communism. But what do you think, so these, these socialist systems, Marxist communists, what were the faults do you think in the systems? Like why did those, those particular countries, so you think about the Soviet Union and then everybody else that was in the Warsaw Pact, those countries, why do you think it collapsed there? I think yeah, ultimately because they were heavy totalitarian states, you know, mm -hmm. that, um, you know, the, where it starts with the problem, I think, was when Marx advocated for the dictatorship of the proletariat after the revolution, which basically gave the green light when these um, states were formed uh, after World War II or in the case of Russia in 1917, um, it basically gave the green light for totalitarianism all in the guise of being uh, the dictatorship of the proletariat which I think is problematic right from the start. And Marx was wrong for advocating for that. Um, and I think because they were so heavily um, totalitarian, you know, which invaded uh, human rights, personal liberties. And I think that was all basically led to a downfall. I mean, there are other economic sides too that were just disastrous by having too much of a planned economy that uh, didn't meet supply to, with combined with the demand that was for some goods, 
uh, the supply wasn't there. I think it was because of the large bureaucracies that were created within the societies and ultimately led to corruption as well. And I think there, there was many factors why these, um, why these societies crumble. I don't believe that it was just they wanted capitalism and they wanted liberty and they wanted freedom. You know, like, uh, it's not like um, the Scorpion song, like when to change, right? Like that, when that came out, I don't believe that. Was, I think it was, it was, I don't necessarily believe that people wanted to get rid of socialism or the belief in trying to advance socialism. I think it was um, more against the totalitarian nature of Stalinism that they were opposed to. Yeah, but you were, when we're at the end of the Soviet era, you have Gorbachev who's creating a sort of openness. I mean, he's, yeah. he's not a Stalin. And, and, no. Stalin was, and Stalin was condemned by Khrushchev even. Um, yeah. Once he, once he takes over. But okay, so uh, I mean, if we look at the examples, everything from Mao's China, of course, Stalin's Soviet Union, but even a place like Cuba, which had a lot of hope for many people in the um, developing world, we seem to have uh, authoritarian, totalitarian type of governments. Like certainly there's not regular legit elections in multiple parties and multiple political point of views being you know, argued out in a parliament. So my question is that when we look at the track record of socialism being implemented as a form of government, it seems to always be uh, in line with some sort of authoritarian approach to governing. So do you think it is possible to have socialism without authoritarianism? Absolutely. Okay, Absolutely. so uh, could you expand on this, why this is possible and maybe where it, it has this ever happened or why hasn't this ever ha happened or occurred? Well, if you look at, I guess the closest, the closest that it's ever come to is if you want to look at um, some of the, like the Nordic countries, um, you know, and they're, you know, they were more social democratic, which they, mm -hmm. you know, democratic socialists, but they still worked within a part, they still worked within a parliamentary system, right? I think that that is possible. I, I think it was but, just- but those are no, sorry to interrupt, but those are those are still capitalist economies. I mean, still they capitalist a, economies. they're not planned market economies. Like no. they they operate in a in a market system. Yeah, exactly. But I still think in terms of governance, it mm -hmm. is possible. It is possible. Um, so you wouldn't call, but we we call that socialism. We just call that social democracy. I think it's it's social democracy. Well, democratic socialism. Like there's so many different phrases, right. and catchphrases, but. They would classify themselves as social democratic parties, still advancing the cause of socialism, um, but doing it in the means of uh, a democratic socialist approach. Um, but I, I still, I, I look to that as a model. Um, right. But that, that's know, not a pure like Marxist economy though. I would no, no. And, but I think it was just the nature of, I mean, at, at fault in many ways is the whole, um, the Leninist model of the party and how the state is organized that that's that's straight from Lenin so mm -hmm. that is where a lot of the product like now looking back and through the readings that's where a lot of the um you know the oppressive nature of Marxism and how it's applied where it's, it basically stems from it stems from 
um, to Leninist model of how the party runs and how the mm-hmm. runs. I mean, there's always talk of allowing other parties to exist. And there were other parties that existed in, say, um, the, in the fronts in uh, East Germany and so, but they were always, they were always totaling to the wishes of the main socialist, like the governing communist party. Yeah, I mean, there was, there was no like hardcore capitalist party, I imagine, that would wanted to bring in Reaganomics in East Germany. Well, there were, there was like, say, in East Germany, there was a liberal party and there was the agrarian party, but they were still part of the the front, like the national front in in East Germany. But in hindsight, they would always vote with the 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 governing socialist party and there was Mm -hmm. very little opposition, which, but it basically, it stems from um, the Leninist approach to governance, which is problematic, right? And, and, right. Many of these companies, these uh, companies, these countries followed, and it's that's the root of the problem right there. Okay, but if people want to maintain things like, say, private property, and have accumulated wealth, and then there's a, a socialist revolution, I mean, don't don't you have to sort of do force, like force them to capitulate to your will if you have a you are a socialist government? Because you can't have like if you have these extremely rich people, yeah. How are how are they going to operate in your in your socialist economy? Like it strikes me that if not everyone buys into it, there has to be some sort of underlying force to get people to comply, and that's why we've maybe seen that in every example of a a, 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 a you know a country that's actually called themselves socialist. Yeah, and that's where a lot of these like these former Eastern Bloc countries and. And uh, certainly, if Mao Zedong's China and so forth, um, it's problematic, right? How it, it um, how it evolved, and and they basically turned into, you know, with the Russian Revolution, peasants were still allowed to um, to keep for land ownership and stuff like that, and uh, but eventually, yeah, you're right, force was used, and is that right? No, it's not right. Um, if you look at the chances of if there was a socialist revolution in the modern day period, with so much so many people owning their own homes, you know, it would be quite hard to, to to confiscate private property, right? So I think you have to have some within reasons. I think now, looking at um, national ownership and nationalization, it would be you're really talking about the large industries, right? You're not talking about the small shopkeeper or the the per the average person owning their own home or farm um, you're talking about large-scale industries that would be needed to be nationalized and redistributed so i mean again, right, but i mean how would that work i mean you're talking about huge corporations you'd have to take over yes so yes. i mean what would what would they i mean a lot of them would i mean in a, in a current system today if you had large like say automobile manufacturers they just get up and leave and go somewhere else. They can get up and leave, of course, but it's taking the actual machinery with them would be problematic, right? Yeah, um, I know. But then the, like, what would you then do? Like, how would you decide how auto like transportation would work, for example? Well, I think the perfect opportunity that was totally missed was um, with GMs closing in Oshawa. 
You mm-hmm. know, if you want to look at like case in point, um, you know, the means of production are there, right? Government could have easily nationalized that, uh, that factory and mm-hmm. retooled it to build like uh, green vehicles, like public transportation, right? Yep. Easily could have done. Okay. And that, okay. was a, and that was a missed opportunity, creating good jobs, uh, good union jobs. And right. Yeah. But I guess that's a different situation because GM was already leaving, right? As opposed mm-hmm. to like, we've created this new government and we just don't want large corporations operating within it. So we're nationalizing all of you. I don't know. Um, anyway, I, I want to get on to some other questions because we have sure. talked about... Um, we have talked quite a bit about some of the issues around uh, communism and socialism, but now let's actually look at looking at capitalism in 2020. What are the main criticisms that you have about capitalism? That it's, it's like a, um, it's that the way I look at it, it's that um, children's book Clifford, you know, with the, the big dog that's just running and running and running and causing complete destruction in its path and just keeps on going and going. I think capitalism, I mean, in what ways leftists leftists are always talking about, you know, trying to predict when the actual demise of capitalism is going to occur. And they think that, Oh, it's just around the corner. Oh, it's next year. But no, I mean, capitalism is a perpetual sickness. It's a perpetual disease that needs to be, you know, solved. And the the answer, in my view, is socialism. But I think you look at the growing um, inequalities and the accumulation of wealth by the 1% is uh, is out of control. Uh, You look at the destruction of the planet and the pollution that is caused by industries that is Mm -hmm. just getting worse and worse. I think is another sign of like the sickness and the disease of capitalism. Um, and overall you look at, I think the, the financial crisis of uh, what was it? 2008, right? Put it in yes. perspective like that. That is, it's not, it's not a sustainable system. It's managed and it's only managed by, you know, the occasional, you know, the cyclical, state interventions of propping up corporations and giving bailouts to corporations in order to um, to maintain the system but it's not a system that works and it's not a system that works for everyone okay but so i guess the big thing is if you look at the comparisons between like personal freedoms and quality of life between countries that were under a capitalist system including our own of canada with countries that have been under socialist slash communist systems, it's like night and day. Yeah, but I think- I mean, I, I lived in South Korea for five years. I mean, just looking at the difference between South and North Korea is night and day. Yeah, but I think you can't hold those countries as like the, on the, on the, on the citadel of being, you know, socialist countries because China is not a socialist country. It's a state capitalist country. Yeah, but China has definitely developed in uh, allowed private ownership and allowed markets to function in a capitalist form. They're just, they're not a non-democratic country. Absolutely. And that's not a but, socialist but they're, they're, 
Yeah, I wouldn't say it's not social, but but then I mean, life expectancy and everything's improved since they've done that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you look at how many people when they do these these, you know, how about how many people have been lifting out of poverty? The one thing they don't tell you is it's mostly China and you know other places like Vietnam. I, ironically, both you know socialist and capitalist socialist in name. But the more they've implemented capitalism, the more people have been lifted out of poverty. I'm not saying there's not negatives there, certainly with the environment and certainly with many other aspects. But if we were comparing like life expectancy in the, you know, during the Great Leap Forward and life expectancy in, you know, the mid 2000s in China, it's there's a huge difference. Yeah, you had the creation and the emerging of like a middle class there. But is there still... Uh, social inequalities that exist absolutely um, but, but again you're looking at you're looking I mean you want to look at the life expectancy I mean if you want to look at one of these um, uh, like you know these uh, bureaucratic uh, countries uh, they exist look at Cuba and the life expectancy how that increased within when the when the country when the revolution happened since then till now, and they have an excellent healthcare system, which was something that they pride themselves on. But um, again, I think the misconception okay. is, is if you start looking at some of these Eastern Bloc Stalinist countries as the you know examples of socialism, when you can quite easily say that they they had elements of socialism in there. They had elements of it, but in many ways, they were they were still state capitalist countries. Right, but I, I just don't know if I'm seeing any evidence, though, of a, of a pure socialist system working. I mean, the more recent places have been some of the places in Latin America, and there have been, in some areas, there were improvements. In other areas, it was a complete disaster as, as well, like Venezuela, I mean, there were some people definitely left it out of poverty initially, but the way that government was run was terrible. Yeah. And again, that's not an example of socialism, right? That's like the, there's elements of socialism that was incorporated in the nationalized industries and so forth, but right. it's not, I mean, there, it's not a socialist society, right? It's not a socialist society. So I think looking at examples of, well, this country tried this and this country tried that, um, you know, aren't clear examples of what socialism can be because they were corrupted and they ended quite. Well, well I guess poorly. the question is why, why is it always end up corrupting? Like, this is sort of like, it reminds me of when people have a religious belief in saying these other people aren't like the true believers of this religion. Yeah. That, that's the kind of comparison I'm getting here. Like what I would say is, is why, why when these, these types of systems have been implemented, they have been, you know, corrupt and there have been authoritarian and they haven't been necessarily democratic. And there's, and you know, the thing about socialism, it's trying to take out hierarchies, but hierarchies seem to develop on all these systems too, just like they do in capitalism. Yeah, because you had bureaucracies that were create large bureaucracies that were created within these societies, right? And that's a product mm -hmm. of directly Stalinism, right? But mm -hmm. um, if you want to look at forms, I mean, you know, one that I looked to, and it was really a form of anarchism, but it can be easily looked at as a as a form of socialism as well as the whole syndicalist movement in uh, Spain 
in right. the in the 1930s that's an example of what it could be right so that's the radical current in labor movements that was active in the earliest 20th century and they mm -hmm. were doing cheat notes on uh wikipedia which you should never use as a reference <laughs> but it's helpful um, it's helpful no, yeah uh, yeah it's always a good way to get a general overview but don't use it as your sole form of research um <laughs> but yeah so the so the syndicalists controlled specific areas in Spain and they, they implemented, did. what were some of the things that they implemented that you found interesting? Well, they did the, they, they brought in um, uh, significant labor reforms um, mm -hmm. and in terms of, uh, I believe they brought in, they were one of the first to bring in the eight hour workday um, okay. or into uh, direct ownership of, uh, of industry through worker control. You know, such things as the railways and factories and so forth were brought in by um, uh, worker ownership and direct worker control without a party and without a, you know, governing bureaucracy. It was all through, you know, federated uh, councils that, uh, that um, you know, worked together. Um, but it was basically, you know, from my understanding and from my reading, uh, in the interest of like uh, early Spain before the before the uh, the Spanish Civil War, it uh, it was direct worker ownership without a political party as the governing bureaucracy that was leading things. So I think that's that's an example of what things could be. Now it wasn't; they were more into the strand of anarchism, but in many ways it was um, it was socialism. There were also okay, so. You want, if you wanted to see socialism implemented, um, so what I would ask is like, what kind of changes do you think you need to happen? So do you want to see like an overthrow of the system or do you want to see some sort of gradual implementation? I think, I think a complete overthrow of the system, is that going to happen? Probably not, you know, and also I'm a little wary of revolutions and how revolutions end. Um, if you look at history and, and even the Russian Revolution as well, they they yep. um, they tend not to uh, end very nicely, you know, especially to those well, who yeah. oppose. Death of death of uh, at least thirty million people over the Soviet Union's time is yeah a, yeah. So I'm looking at like you can say that I'd be taking more of a reformist uh, approach, like the gradual introduction, like gradual move towards socialism. So, so how does that work? Is that like just higher taxes on the on the rich, like a progressive taxation? Um, or is that, you know, you're talking about worker ownership. So is that like implementing more co-ops? Like, well, how does that actually work? I think one of the easiest things that the left does, and I think it's uh, wrong in many ways, is to just automatically assume that you're going to tax the rich. And, you know, that somehow the 1% is going to pay um, for everything, uh -huh. um, basically. But um, they fail to understand sometimes that there's such things as wire transfers and easily cap capital can be moved, you know, in the matter of seconds. Yeah, yeah, it can be moved in the matter of seconds. Um, right. So I'd look at more gradual uh, means to introduce socialism, such as uh, worker ownership um of industries and again i use the missed opportunity of gm and oshawa as a missed opportunity for 
uh, worker ownership. And so would that be, that wouldn't be government run. That would be groups of workers coming together and buying it. Or, or the state, uh, the state taking it over and it be managed by the workers themselves, you know, that it'd be organized and managed by workers themselves, which really is what Marx was talking about before that workers own the means of production. Um, but, um, yeah, it would be looking at work, right, worker ownership. I mean, there are examples of, um, I, in a, even in Ontario, of workers coming together and owning industries. If I'm not mistaken, and I could be wrong, I think the name was Algoma Steel in uh, mm -hmm. Northern Ontario, where workers uh, uh, own that, uh, that factory for a while. So they, okay, so... Yeah. yeah. Are, there, are there concrete examples of, of where this kind of uh, co-op has been done on a large scale? Well, yeah, there is. And the name escapes me, but um, perhaps you can help me out um, in Spain. Um, oh, Mandr the Mandragon. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. I think that like you can say that my approach is almost like a cooperative approach, like of um, mm -hmm. cooperative societies, which I, I think you can look at, look at that as well. But um I think it, like the gradual uh, introducing, having unions negotiate uh, more worker um, representation on board of directors, such mm -hmm. as in Germany, um, in the gradual, the, basically through the gradual uh, peaceful, and I want to emphasize peaceful, uh, uh -huh. move, towards, uh, move towards socialism. Okay, so you're talking about a, a gradual reforming. Um, which I think you have to do these days because revolution, look, I mean, just look how states are toppled in, in, uh, in recent history. They, they, they don't necessarily end well. So no, no, you often go from one bad situation to another. Yeah. Uh, often even a worse situation. Yeah. So I guess this will be my last question for you. Thank you for taking the time here. Um, I guess why, when I'm looking at places like the United States, the United Kingdom, and even here in Canada, I always notice that the guy, and of course this is a stereotype that we should not, you know, put on anybody, but I'm just going from my observations. When I was looking at people who read the Toronto Sun, for example, um, it would often be the working class. Mm -hmm. um, not only, but they, they had a high readership amongst the working class, even though that's a newspaper that holds very right-wing views um in the united kingdom it was the the working class of you know places like uh the midlands and northern england who voted for brexit yeah and in the united states uh the working class at least the white working class are, are the, the the big you know foundation of the trump support they're not the only uh people who support trump but there's a big part of of his support so why have left-wing parties who are supposed to be in, you know, their, their philosophy is about being in the interest or fighting for the interest of the working class. Why have they not been able to be successful in getting the working class to actually vote for them in recent years? Because I think, I mean, that's a, that's like the million dollar question right there. And I think the problem is that um, many leftist parties um, have taken on a, an elitist approach um, where they are going, they know they have this belief that they know 
in what's in the best interest of the working class and they're going to shape their party policy based on that and that the working class are just going to fall in line and vote for whatever they um, put forward which if you the examples that you provided are a case in point that the working class has rejected that um, I think many leftist parties or left of center like social democratic parties have um, got it wrong that they're not looking at what the interests of the working class are which is basically um, a, like a, a good living wage um, um, you know moderate a moderate level of taxation um, which are concerned con concerned about and you know making sure that they're going to have enough money to you know put their kids through school pay their bills and have a little bit uh, saved away so they they can enjoy it um, i think that what many leftist parties have gotten wrong is that they've ignored the traditional bread and butter issues of of uh, the working class right so i mean you could um you know and they've you know if you want to look at concepts of like the green economy and the green new deal and stuff like that um you got to put that in a way that the average working class person would buy into that and see themselves part of that society and see themselves as part of that movement as opposed to telling them this is what's in your best interest and you better vote for us because we know it's right for you so i think they've gotten it wrong in so many different approaches that they're not focusing on the bread and butter issues of what's important to the average working class uh, voter which is a good living wage uh, fair taxation um, you know a good social security net and that type of stuff that's what i think is important Okay. Well, you know, this has been a great conversation. I think we definitely need to take it up again. You've given me a lot of good insights here onto um, uh, this looking at things from a socialist perspective and looking at the issues related to socialism. And it was, uh, I think, a really good history lesson for the, the listeners as well. So, uh, Neil Williams, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Does capitalism have a future? Thank you. Thanks very much. Enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Does Capitalism Have a Future? The music track that you are hearing is Climb by Shane Ivers. Thank you. See you next episode.